welcome to ASAR Training and Response Podcast. This is episode 15. Join us as we recap 2020. Welcome back, everybody, to the ASAR Training and Response Podcast. With us today is co-host Carla Lewis. Good morning. Good morning. And we are really excited to uh, have this show today. This is going to be our end of 2020 wrap-up show. And with us today is Mike Mather and Brett Huff. And you guys have, have heard Brett before as, as part of the ASAR and Code 3 podcast and if you've been to class with us in previous years you've probably met mike in some fashion uh but just in case folks don't know both of you mike why don't you get off why don't you give us a quick introduction well hello good to be here uh nice to hear you all and yeah um i am a swiftwater rescue technical rope instructor boat operations pwc and animal rescue working with asar originally I don't know, it's been about five years ago now, something like that, and been fortunate enough to sit in on some classes and then get spun up to actually teach some classes and joining the podcast for comic relief. (laughs) (laughs) So Mike is is literally an internationally known rescue instructor. He's taught in places that, you know, don't speak English, where he has had to uh, explain things with his hands or show things to interpret uh, the rescue and he thinks outside the box and I mean not just outside the box he turns the box inside out he takes it apart he reconstructs it with a matter of view and is amazing in, in problem solving so we are very grateful to have him on board as one of our instructors and uh, has actually been out in, in disaster response with us so uh uh, absolutely happy to have him on board. And then with us also, Brett Huff. Brett, how are you this morning? Wonderful. Glad to be a part of the podcast today. So, Brett, tell us, you have a couple things that we're going to go into your programs later, but kind of give us a quick introduction and summary of where you're at today. Wow. That's, uh, it's been 2020. has been a pretty unique year. We've done a lot of great training. Uh, I've been a, I guess I've been, we've been doing this together rescue-wise for over 20 years now. Pretty, pretty close, right? Uh, so I've been doing technical rescue stuff for Code 3, and then I've been an instructor for ASAR for the last several years, and Eric and I, we've traveled the country doing what we do. Yeah, and we're going to get into some of the things that Brett is going to be rolling out in 2021 with Animal Decon. It is groundbreaking, and we'll be rolling that out at the state and federal level. It'll be exciting to talk about those new programs. Well, Miss Carla, it's been a few months since we've gotten together. How have you been lately? Uh, you know, good. Things are busy. Uh, pretty excited about a few things we've been rolling out in the ACO world as far as some support through Code 3. So I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later on some new exciting programs we're rolling out and just really looking forward to 2020 being over and starting 2021 with a large animal rescue class and um, hopefully having a, a less exciting year than, than 2020. Right. Well, we, we do have a lot of exciting things going on with Code 3 uh, as we roll out the new Animal Control Coalition uh, and the Code 3 Compass Matrix. So ASAR will be hosting some Code 3 topics uh, and hopefully some ACO program uh, topics going into 2021. So that's going to be exciting to hear how all that goes. So we've brought everybody together today to kind of do a quick uh, review of how 2020 went, because it really was to be the banner year uh, to get uh, professional animal rescue training out to a whole variety of responders. And we were, we had civilian classes, we had zoo classes, we had uh, first responder task force, USAR teams, we were booked nine months in advance. And then COVID hit. And we ended up selling pencils on the corner. Started out um, in February of last year, and we started out with a great exotic animal strike team training with Columbus Zoo. And what a fantastic facility Columbus Zoo is. And you've probably seen them on TV. They've actually had their own show on, uh oh, what's it called? Anybody remember? It's, it, it's behind, behind, is it behind the zoo? Or is it just the zoo? The zoo, yeah. I think I don't know. There is that, but yeah, no. What a what you know? What a great zoo! And 
And Eric, maybe we could just talk a little bit about what the exotic animal program is for people who maybe don't don't even know what you know, what we do with exotics. We started the the exotic animal strike team program several years ago to deal with animals over 3,000 pounds that were inside a potential enclosed space instead of outside where a crane could pick them up. So we're dealing with hippos, we're dealing with rhinos, we're dealing with elephants, we're working with giraffe. Um, These large animals uh, need special equipment. Now we can adapt our current technical animal rescue skills and equipment to that, And a little bit of that is uh, beta testing new equipment that's brought to us by one of our partners uh, with Dr. Kathleen Becker and Haas, H-A-S-T, rescue equipment. So as we get into Columbus Zoo, we bring Mike in and and his beautiful wife, Christine, and we're bringing uh, Morgan Rivera, who is part of the exotic animal strike team on the international side. And of course, Carla is our exotic animal strike team lead here in the United States. We were training at Columbus Zoo with them on an elephant rescue focus. So we were introducing them to the Haas frame and a tripod in an A-frame configuration. And we are, were also introducing them to the quick-release spreader bar, uh, which if you haven't seen the spreader bar, it's nine feet long. It weighs about 100 pounds, and uh, it has quick-release shackles on it. And it's always interesting when we have Mike Mather around on uh, – <laughs> how we can test new equipment in new fashion. Because remember, I told you, he thinks outside the box. So here's the scenario. Let me set it up for you. And then I'm going to turn it over to Mike. We are in this large elephant arena. We have a tripod set up and we are lifting a large tire. Uh, it's about four or 500 pounds. It's in the sling. It's hanging from the air. And I'm talking about how the ramshackles will hold even if you accidentally pull the quick release. And then Mike comes up and says, Yeah, um, can I try pulling on that thing real quick? Because, uh, you know, he said I was going to hold thousands of pounds and you wouldn't, it wouldn't release. And so, you know, I was like, well, let's prove that. Let's check that out. Best time to test something is in front of an audience that you've told multiple times this will hold. <laughs> so, I go, I interrupt his instruction. I interrupt the presentation because of me being the curious individual I am. And I went up and I got a hold of the cord and it was, it was caught under a strap. And so I flicked it to kind of get it out from under the strap. I hadn't even really pulled on it yet. And the whole load came crashing to the ground. Um, and uh, I saw my whole animal rescue instruction career in front of me. Pretty much done. And, um, and, and there was silence and the look on Eric's face was just a big, okay, we can deal with this. And, uh, so I, uh, I walked over and, uh, yeah. And said, uh, yeah, my baseball cap name tag and t-shirt will be in the truck. I'll see you later. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, fortunately, Christine was there. And, and so I walked over to her for a little support from my wife and all she looks at me and does, and she goes, really? So, uh, yeah, it was it was a grand moment for me and, uh, and Eric's uh, uh, explanation of the system. But but in the end, uh, yeah, as embarrassing and ridiculous as it was, we learned a lot in that very moment. And uh, and so you know, I mean, fortunately, I do feel good that uh, you know uh, that we 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 were more clear on that, and uh, and that you know potentially nobody get hurt in the future uh, because I definitely am good at hurting people, and so that could have happened then. Fortunately, just me. Um, but, uh, but then Eric called, uh, the, the manufacturer back. Right. And what did you hear from them? Yeah. And, and so it, it really was one of those things that needed to happen. And, and it just happened in such a funny moment. Uh, and I'm glad Carla did not have her camera. I catch the expression on my face because I, I don't know what that would have been like, but I did call Kathleen up and I said, Kathleen, I thought these ramshackles weren't supposed to release under loan. She said, no, that's what they're supposed to do. It's just more difficult for them to release under load. Now think about this. These ram shackles are, are a little bit larger than a softball and they're meant to hold 30,000 pounds. So when you put 500 pounds between two shackles, it's no weight at all. And, and so, you know, the fact that it opened up with such light pressure was no surprise to her and said, you know, that's what quick release shackles are supposed to do, Eric. So in this whole time, when she said it just becomes more difficult under load, 
And I interpreted that as, well, it'll probably never happen. So we're glad to get that clarification. They worked as they were designed to work. So we're really glad this moment happened. And I felt like Elon Musk, when he rolled out his truck with shatterproof windows, and they had the demonstration on stage with a, with a uh, that has the steel ball. And he says, throw it at the window. It won't even shatter. And he throws it at the window and it just, you know, it chips apart and, and Elon Musk faces like, well, that's interesting. We're going to have to work on that. So I felt like Elon Musk. But uh, after we got done with Columbus Zoo and we were getting into February, uh, we started to hear more about COVID and it really started to take swing in, in March. And Brett, you are our biosecurity expert. Um, tell us what you were doing months before this was announced and how you were prepping Code 3 and ASAR for what was to come. Well, it, it was kind of a not really the COVID-related issue. Um, there's, a, there's a big issue with some stuff coming out of Africa we need to worry about. And it was, we were already on a part of a team for that. So I was basically doing biosecurity and basically making sure that we had everything that we needed for any response. The COVID thing was just basically, it was plug and play. We already had the disaster plan. We already had an infectious disease plan. Uh, started watching the COVID stuff. Actually, the Wuhan virus before it was COVID. Uh, started seeing stuff come out of China in mid to late November. Um, I kind of remember talking to Eric. I was chasing down. I was trying to see the first uh, text message we passed back and forth about COVID. And it was on the last couple of days of January. That that email was about uh, some stickers and stuff that I had made that was coming out of that Providence of China. And they back ordered them because they were no longer working. Everything was shut down. Kind of brought this to Eric, and I said, you know, with international travel, we're going to have a issue from the Wuhan province of China. And I let Eric reintegrate what he told me off this one. I I thought back then it was going to be big. I figured it's going to affect about 40% of the population was going through just from the models that were coming out of Asia and the immediate response and the effective rate that was happening in Italy and throughout Spain just because of the world travel again. Um, so we already had a plan in place. I already had all the supplies, already had all the equipment. But I was working for uh, a whole different issue. It was a whole other, a whole other problem. But the virus is a virus. So as long as we, as long as we had all the equipment and the stage and the teams trained, uh, we were always going to be ahead of the game. So which was kind of great because we were already working on this. So we started getting some of our team members quickly changed. We got the 40-hour Hazwopper to some of our core team members so we could do some just-in-time training. Uh, we used the live animals, my guys. Uh, Gunner and Leo, Leo was available and Peanut was available for the first part of the training. Then I we brought Gunner in in March, and uh, he started as well. So the, the dogs got to work through the decon process and got us to be able to establish how we were going to handle uh, live animals in a working situation. So being a little bit of forethought and working on some other infectious diseases that were, were coming around, uh, the COVID thing was really not an issue. It basically, we had everything already had stacks of supplies. We can run a team of 45 people for three weeks and not really dent into our supplies. So we were way ahead when this all started. We actually developed a training a gear bag for animal control officers. Um, Carla got one of the first ones out the door. We've got a few more to give out this year. And it's basically just gear and protection stuff to protect our animal control officers through any environment that they could possibly come into from a hazmat situation as such as a meth lab all the way down to this, to the Wuhan virus, the COVID-19 stuff. Uh, having the proper gear for our first responders and our first line workers is essential. And we, we value all our people that are on our team. So if we can get the gear to them and the training to them, that's just going to make us more effective moving forward to the future. You know, Brett, I think one of the really interesting things that came out of COVID and um, animal control and animal issues is just how essential that people who work in the animal field are to their communities and, and to, to public safety in general. And so many things came out, so many different procedures. And, you know, initially when um, the shutdowns were happening and people were told they had to stay home, a lot of animal control officers and shelter workers were initially told that they, they couldn't work, that they would have to shut down. And, and it really became this huge emergency issue for a lot of people. And they, you know, had to go to their state legislatures and their emergency managers and start those talks that we always stress all the time that you should have these relationships before something happens. That way, when something, you know, does happen, you're already on the forefront or there's already a plan. So it's very interesting to see how, how things developed and how 
animal control officers and shelter workers and, and veterinarians, all these people were deemed essential because our animals are very important to us and, you know, their care is very important. And um, just that it's a public safety issue. And, you know, so many things came out with COVID on whether it was transmittable to our pets and whether, you know, vice versa, whether if they had it, they could transmit it to humans. And, you know, it was very interesting to be involved in all of those talks and, and procedures and, and all the, the different really good things that came out of COVID. And I know, Brett, you were involved in some of those talks with state and federal partners. Yeah, we, we published Code 3 and ASAR and, and myself, we published our first paper on infectious disease plans, basically protocols on how you had to work. We did that early March. So we were the first uh, first team to come out with any any designated plans and give some give some good foundation knowledge for the workers out there. We, we know we know animal control officers are essential workers. It, did, it didn't translate through in the beginning because everybody was so worried about how, how the infection rate was going to go through the population. And we, we truly didn't know how the, there was a lot of mixed studies on how long the virus lives. It's a novel virus. You know, it's, it, it is a virus. How long is it going to live on a surface? So the big push in the beginning was, you know, for animal officers or anybody to work in response is, is are we going to transmit the disease to the animals or is the animals going to turn it back around and transmit it back to us? That, that's the big scary portion. Uh, for me in the beginning, it really had nothing to do with the transmission between animal and human. It had to do with the length of the time the virus could stay alive. There was mixed studies on it was how long it live on cardboard, how long it would live on a viable host. Uh, for, for me, it was just basically what happens if you sneeze on your Pomeranian to, to put it flat on it. So, and then when you give the Pomeranian a hug or he comes, does, does drive by on you, do you reinfect some yourself or do you infect somebody else? So as a fomite, which is basically just a, a virus living on a substance of some kind and the animal going back and forth, that was the big area for me. And just being able to do some safe protocols with our animal control officers, you know, simple gloves, you know, maybe some goggles at the point there and just making sure you could handle the animal safely and make sure you decon whatever you put the animal in. And I think that helped out a lot in the beginning and it took a lot of fear away because there really was not a lot of information and it was a lot going back and forth. The, the back and forth in this, in this virus is what caused a lot of the problems. That's why we have so many people that want to do stuff and that don't want to do stuff because there's so much mixed information in the beginning. If we would just came out with a fact, science-based information in the front end of it, this thing would already probably been squashed out. You know, wash your hands, stay distant apart, you're infected, stay home kind of deal. And I think that would have fixed a lot of our problems, you know. And so we've, we've now carried this on. We're into nine months of it that they've known here, but I believe it, I believe we're more into the 12-month range. I believe we were infected in early January versus in March. I think our international travel, we start having some pockets in, in New York and California for sure because that's where the international travel comes into, and then it just basically spread it out from there. Yeah, and, and that type of preparedness really did prove to be prudent as we went ahead and scheduled a few agency classes. And one of the first, well, the first class that we went to right after COVID broke was Washington, D.C. And we went in there to work with both D.C. Fire and the Humane Rescue Alliance. Uh, they had uh, part of their officers, I think about a 20 officer class, where we had to submit an extensive safety plan uh, that included, you know, us having to isolate in our travel trailer we parked at the tra training facility eventually um, <laughs> and went from the training facility Snitches get stitches right? yeah well uh, we'll get into that story in a minute <laughs> yeah parked at the training facility and went from the trailer 10 feet into the classroom and then back to the trailer and we did that for, for five days um so the dc trip was really interesting it was brett and carla and i uh we had the travel trailer and we had all of our equipment in two trucks and we traveled across the country. And it was really interesting going from the Midwest to a hot zone as we saw the masks increase and the restrictions increase. And the goal was just to park us uh, somewhere in D.C. and then we would travel up to the training center. And so HRA had an open lot down in the southern part of D.C. And Carla, do you remember the nickname you gave that trip? What did I call it? I mean, I think I was like, you know, it, it was the did you die, did you die yeah, trip. but did you die trip? Definitely. I mean, we had 
even the trip out was a bit harrowing because as Eric said, you know, we were, we were still coming from a state that didn't even require masks at that time. If I recall right, I think it was recommended, but not, not required. And as we kept getting farther and farther East, you know, we all had our masks. We, I mean, we, you know, we were so sanitized our, you know, our hands reeked of alcohol, but, you know, so we had all these safety protocols in place and, and we finally get in. What did we drive through? We drove through snow. And I think we went through every season, even on the way out there, because we hit snow in West Virginia, didn't we? We did. Yeah. Did. So that was crazy. And this was my very first trip to uh, Washington, D.C. So what a, what a time to go. But my absolute favorite part of this trip was the first 20 minutes as we you know pull into D.C., And we get to this little neighborhood, which seemed pretty nice. It didn't, you know, there was no red flags, you know, as we, as we pulled in, we got into a nice, secured, completely enclosed lock, you know, locked gate. And um, we did have a, a house we could go into to use their, you know, their restroom, which is always nice. And um, so we parked the the RV, get everything kind of settled and, and Brett and I are outside and, you know, suddenly I heard, you know, some noises, you know repercussion type noises, very loud. Um, I live in a fairly large city in Kansas City. And so gunshots are not, you know, they're kind of a, a common occurrence. And and I looked at Brett and I quickly headed to the back of the trailer where there was cover. And I said, that's gunshots. Brett, I don't think you agreed with me at the time. <laughs> oh, I did. It was Eric that thought it was a tarp flapping. <laughs> I know. Trailer full of metal going by. We were right next to the highway, and I just came out of the house, so I was on the opposite oh, side yeah. of the shooting. And I'm like, "Oh no, that was just a truck trailer going by." And yeah. Brett goes towards the danger. <laughs> I was like, of "What course. are you doing?" I'm backing away, looking for cover. All I hear is gunshots, lots of gunshots, and and close too. And and Eric and Brett are like, oh, "I don't know, I don't think that's gunshots." I'm like, "Oh, I think that's gunshots." And finally, they made me doubt myself. And then we hear every you know police car for the you know what ten mile radius come screaming in, and uh, it was pretty funny. We 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 had quite the introduction into into DC. So you got to make sure you, you got to make sure you understand the gunshots were a drive by shooting <laughs> people. Uh, two blocks away we could see where the cop cars were parking at we could see where it happened from where we were located at so i'll carry the story on so <laughs> eric, eric and i cannot seem to term the, the the one of our past careers out of our heads we we seem to seem to just keep going looking for things uh when we were parked at i noticed a vehicle that was just not right it was just it was you know it's the whole sesame street law enforcement one of these things is not like another one of these things don't belong and the vehicle just got parked there and it was just got dumped behind us so of course being the good citizens that eric and i are we call the local police and say a vehicle was abandoned by the thing and it just happened to be a part of that drive-by shooting so and if you want to carry on to the next portion eric i'll let you tell the portion where we were not doing what we were supposed to do and got in a patrol car well, yeah, so while we're, we're actually doing some maintenance on the RV. We're filling up the generators for the night. We're getting ready to retire, and he, we're standing there working in the dark, and and we're, we're parked at an intersection, basically this lot. Brett and I are just working on the, on the RV, and here this car pulls up, and four kids jump out of it and run away. And we're like, oh, hell no, it did not <laughs> just happen, you know. And so I ended up calling our host agency and say, hey, on top of this possible suspect vehicle being abandoned right here, somebody else just dropped off a Jeep. Um, and I can actually, the police cars are still at the crime scene. And so they gave me the number to call. And I said, this is totally unrelated, but you may have a stolen vehicle sitting right here. And so they came over. Uh, about 10 minutes later and said, oh yeah, we've actually been looking for this vehicle all day. Which way did they go? We said they went that way. They said, do you have a description? No, not really. They were in dark clothing. They had hoods over them. We couldn't identify who, even if we wanted to. And uh, so they said, okay, thanks. And off the cops go. And as, as we start to get back in the trailer, here come the helicopters and we can hear more cars coming in to set up the perimeter. And so we get in the trailer and get in our bunks and are getting ready to go to sleep. Now, remember, we're in a completely enclosed, chained-in fence, razor wire over the top. Eight-foot razor wire. Um, And we have the air conditioning running. And 
And apparently the officers uh, found some potential suspects at a construction site several blocks down and wanted us to go see if we can ID or, or relate them to the car. And uh, so instead of calling me, because I'd already called dispatch, instead of calling me back on the number that I called in on, they cut the fence that we were in to come knock on the trailer door. Uh, Bang on the trailer door. Like one of us was keeping their head down and not causing problems and not (laughs) (laughs) raising any sort of attention to ourselves. And they were trying to sleep. (laughs) Carla was not happy with us at that point in time because we're pretty sure that in between all that going on that we witnessed another drug deal where the car parked. Got something out of the trunk, went to an apartment, came back with another bag, put it in the trunk, and then left. So, uh, so Carla is like, shut the door, snitches get stitches, stop looking out the window. <laughs> stop looking at things. You, right? exact words, exact words. Stop you too quit. <laughs> you too quit looking. <laughs> so, yeah, Carla was less than happy with Brett and I interacting. So, anyway, officers come and say, hey, we come with us real quick. We just need to, to, to scoot. And Brett and I are like, fine, we'll go do it. And they pull up the police car. And we have been so careful all across the country. Now we get into a police car. I'm the DC police car. Yeah, <laughs> DC. DC is a hot zone right now. These guys are not wearing masks. These guys, you know been interacting with public you get an enclosed car and neither one of us have masks <laughs> and we it doesn't dawn on us because we're so focused on everything else um until we're already headed over to the construction site long story short the suspects that they got playing in the construction site weren't the ones that we saw we couldn't relate to them they took us back and the, I, I finally call our host agency at 11 o'clock at night they said you move us or i'm going back to kansas <laughs> <laughs> not staying and eric and i and Eric and I bathed in, in hand sanitizer on top to bottom for being in the na- back of a nasty patrol car. And both of us know never to get into somebody else's patrol car. We know that. Right. Uh, so we did move to a much better environment. We had a great time yes. with the HRA crew, and we had a wonderful time with DC Fire. They were so gracious. Uh, the, the officers up there are rock stars. The firefighters were so incredibly supportive of the animal rescue and, and hosted us at their harbor uh, for the boat operations. So we really do look forward to getting back there and working with them again and, and hopefully a more calm environment. But it, it was definitely culture shock coming out of the Midwest and going into D.C. during that time. But, you know, we did a lot of traveling. We, we ended up getting down to North Carolina for a smaller class. And again, we're in the travel trailer. We're isolating so we can, and we've already been tested. Was able to get a COVID test. We tested negative. So we were on to our next class um, and really had a good time in North Carolina. I think the highlight of that trip for me um, was number one, we got to see a lot of our North Carolina friends. Uh, we've got a great relationship with Four Hooves, uh, Large Animal Rescue, Tori and Justin McLeod out there. And of course, uh, Chrissy Newman with Rescue Ranch. Uh, she got to come play at training. Uh, and it was really, uh, this was a great training because we had two agencies from smaller towns that were within 15, 20 minutes of each other that didn't train with each other on a regular basis. And they used the ASAR class to come together, bring their agencies together, and do a cooperative training over three days with us. Uh, and we really, I mean, that, that was a good time. Not to mention, we stayed, uh, we parked the travel trailer at a uh, homemade brewery yeah. area down there. So, you know, to be a gracious guest, uh, we went and tried some of their micro brews after class each evening. But, uh, you know, that, that was a great way for uh, smaller agencies to actually find a way to get together and cooperate. And for our for our training access, that go back to the D.C. and the North Carolina trips. Our, our infectious disease plan. We basically sanitized classroom. We did everybody's temperatures coming in and out. We sanitized before they got there, and we sanitized after they came back from break. And we just made sure that everything was clean through there. We went to a paper. This is a big one. I think was very important for us in 2020. Is we figured out the process. And we had went paperless, so we didn't have to have sign-in rosters and things. All everything was done through a QR code, which was huge for us for 2020. And then in, when we got down to North Carolina, that's where we rolled out Gunner. Yes. So Gunner was first trip <laughs> with us was in it was in North Carolina. So along with our paperless, uh, paperless everything your manuals, your books, your tests, all through that there, through there. I think that was our hugest uh, 
advancement that we did for our classroom portions for 2020. And then, of course, Gunner was a he's a so everybody that doesn't know Gunner that has not got to meet him yet, he is a a male Doberman, and he started out uh, when we first got him. He's four months old. We got him down to their first training. He's been through training for the rest of the year. He's been in Lake Michigan. He's traveled the country with us. A great hands-on thing. We trained with the Marine Corps with Gunner, and he's now at ten months old. He is a seventy-eight pounds of just awesome dog. So you guys will be looking forward to seeing him in twenty twenty-one. Yeah, Gunner is amazing, and Brett has done a lot of training with with Gunner. So he looks impressive. He's very he can be scary when he wants to be. He's a big cuddle bug when he wants to be. But you know, don't doubt that if we put him in a stressful situation, that he could have some sort of reaction um, and want to mouth on somebody. Um, that's not his nature. But, you know, any animals that we work with, we do a lot of desensitization so they can adapt to most situations. Now, Brett takes it one step further because every time I teach, I will come up with a scenario that I say, listen, animals aren't going to think this way. They're not going to do what a human will do. And one of the examples was stop throwing throw bags and float rings to animals to save them. They're not going to grab a hold and hang on on the way to shore. So what's Brett do with Gunner? He starts training him with a throw bag to go out in the water and grab it and hang on so he can get saved. And he, he demos it in North Carolina. Well, actually, Brett is the victim in the river, going down river. Gunner's on shore and sees Brett coming down and Brett's doing his fake, help me, help me. Gunner jumps in to save Brett. They throw the throw bag to Brett and Gunner grabs the line and starts throwing Brett in. So I, you know, I had to stop issuing challenges of what animals can do because Brett will teach his dog to do it. And if you guys are not following our Facebook and Instagram pages, uh, definitely this is a good time to do that because there's lots and lots of pictures of Gunner and Leo, who is the cutest little rescue dachshund in the world. Um, so we, they always are the highlight of the photography when we're when we're doing training. So make sure you follow our Facebook and Instagram pages for sure at asartraining.com. Yeah, they, they really are exciting part of the training. And uh, we're actually going to have to start a, a video post of putting Leo in an evac sack and watching him play <laughs> in an evac sack. Because uh, it's in Leo, little dachshund. And if you're not familiar with evac sack, ASAR. Uh, has partnered with EVACSAC. It's a it's a mesh bag made for emergency evacuation of animals. Um, you can put small dogs in there, cats, um, non-traditional animals, and get them out of there if you don't have a carrier. So when Brett and Carla do this outstanding equipment demo, and one of it is, you know, here's an EVACSAC, and he calls Leo over, and Leo is the best actor. He will look at Brett and like, I'm not getting in the bag, but then once Brett puts him in the bag, he loves it. He lays on his back. He growls. He plays in there. And then he'll stick his head out like a rodent and then go right back in the bag and go play again. And, you know, we're trying to teach a class and we're trying to keep a professional, but it's so funny to watch him do it. Um, yeah. And it's almost like he looks out to see people watching him. And then he goes back in the bag when he knows people are watching him. So good time. So we traverse from North Carolina up to Chicago and, and, you know, we're going to preface this with, we love the Chicago fire department and they were gracious hosts. Uh, Chief Jason Locke over there, uh, one of their training chiefs uh, took very good care of us and, and helped plan a really large training. We had 90 of their firefighters that we needed to train over a four day period. So we brought in Mike Mather expert water instructor of all types to join us in Chicago. And so now in the travel trailer, we've got Brett and Carla and I, the two dogs, and now we've added Mike <laughs> and we've parked at a helicopter port uh, right there next to the lake. Beautiful location. And Mike, first impressions of you hadn't been to the ASAR bunkhouse yet um, and your sleeping quarters were uh, elegant with chandeliers, of course, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Better than his truck. Hey, now. <laughs> <laughs> More room than your truck. We'll say that. 
yeah man uh but no it, it, luxury living i mean geez uh you know uh we had a park we had a lake we had helicopters all night during the riots i forgot about that. Yeah, that's yes. right the riot in, in the brochure it was a high power overhead fan um <laughs> uh, so you know to keep us cool on the nights where we wouldn't need air conditioning and uh i think uh the, the, the advertising was misrepresented on how powerful that fan was um and then, uh, and then Brett was quick to point out, well, no, these helicopters have four blades, so they're a lot less quiet than the two-blade helicopters. Like, oh, well, great. Then I'll be sure not to sleep through either of them. Uh, but uh, no, it, actually, they didn't fly all night, just most of the night. And uh, But man, what a cool location. Um, everything right there. So, cause yeah, this is now at this point, COVID is ramping up. Um, and, uh, also, uh, you know, um, we're on the South side of Chicago, which is famous in a couple Jim Croce songs. So, uh, the, the ASR crew coming out of DC is already literally gun shy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, we have another 10 foot fence with barbed wire to protect us. So feeling pretty good about that. And, uh, and so with all these horror stories, man, it actually turned out really low key. Uh, we had a nice park to run in. Um, then we had the, the water right there to go out on and uh, train. And then the firefighters were really, really good about masking up in the classroom, uh, hand sanitization, because at this point, it, had, it was still not standard fare. It was still coming in. And these guys uh, responded to it and respected it really quickly. And uh, that put us in a more comfortable level to be able to train, because at this point, training was looking not possible in a lot of areas. Um, and, uh, man, and then this was my first time I was supposed to watch one. Uh, I participated in a couple and then this time I was supposed to watch the first one through the eyes of being an instructor in training and then teach the second one. And, uh, that was, uh, that was pretty interesting. And I, uh, I don't know that I want your feedback on a podcast. You can tell me later, how it went. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, uh, great group and uh and a really good group to train and great people to train with and uh we got to see some family members also on that trip that uh i had not met and uh others had not um seen in a long time and that was a great experience so uh man it was just uh yeah it was a really good training and uh also rolling out kind of some new stuff so that was neat yeah if you guys get a chance go over to the acer training and response youtube channel and check out the chicago fire video that carrie did for us and and carrie's the production manager for ASR. She did an outstanding job with it. Uh, we were and for this classroom, we kind of we were at a helicopter port, so we were in a in a maintenance area for our classroom. And then as soon as we could, we opened the garage doors and we were outside the rest of the time. Uh, and as Mike said, we went over to the water in the afternoons. And th this is where you know having multiple seasoned instructors really panned out. So break team up because you got to think. We've got 30 guys per day. That's a pretty large class. And our goal is to keep everybody moving, hands-on, engaged the entire time. Standing around, for, especially for first responders, is just the devil's hands at work. We don't want to give them that time to think about it. We want to keep them moving. Um, and so we split up, and uh, Bretton and Mike uh, were able to run certain scenarios and Carla and I were able to run boat ops over there and then we would combine four scenarios and I love Mike Mather and his thinking outside the box scenarios uh, I had a simple uh, go out and do animal rescue with an abandoned boat he says hey let's put that boat over and let's put some victims underneath and I want to put a dead guy out there on, on a pylon and they got to go get a dead guy and let's see if they can prioritize he said where are we gonna get a dead guy and he says no no i play a great dead guy <laughs> i have the pictures it's the yeah pictures. and like all right I, I gotta see this and so brett goes out with the dogs he's the human victim there they take a firefighter they put him underneath the boat and they go and they hang matter over there on a pylon about 50 yards away from the quote-unquote accident and I'm looking at him and he's, he's, he sees this. And before the scenario starts, he's already face down in the water floating. And now I can start to see the public start to watch from shore. <laughs> We're in an open park. Anybody can watch this. The police officers have now arrived and are watching the scenario. And now there's fire trucks everywhere. They understand it's raining. But they go and one boat goes for Mike. One boat goes to Brett. And when the boat gets there, I expect Mike to pop his head up and say, I'm playing dead. No, Mike goes limp. 
And when they grab him, he doesn't respond. He makes them pick him up like he's dead. And it's dead, dead weight. That's where they get the term, right? And here's Carla taking pictures with her brand new photo yes. uh, long lens. And so when you look at the photos, Mike, I mean, there's no expression on his face. And you, they're twisting him and contorting him in all sorts of fashion to get him in the boat. And it was an amazingly scary um, realistic uh, scenario of wow, they just pulled a dead guy out there, um, and he played it all the way to shore. You know, did they start uh, resuscitation? Did they start compressions? Did they do anything? And and might critique that. So, guaranteed, when you have the uh, uh, the matter training, is that it is real life as well. Yeah, it's funny. You know what? What I was striving for was just uh, you know animal, animal, animal. And uh, still wanted to see if they could keep track on their rescue priorities, you know, that they look out for themselves, number one, their team, number two. And uh, I was hoping that, uh, you know, the public would be next um, bystanders. And then you start to get into the people in trouble. And, and ideally, we don't send victims to the rescue. So, you know, we've got these rescue priorities. And for a long time uh, during these you know, presentations, we were under the impression that, you know, again, myself, then my team, then bystanders then the victim, then potentially animals. Well, we learned quickly in Chicago that they were much more heartfelt for an inflatable pool toy dog than they were an actual live human face down in the water, how they would uh, just go blasting past me. And then when you had Gunner and Leo in the mix, um, they they would have just left me out there. Uh, they definitely would have been like, you know, uh, you know, that guy deserved everything he's getting and we're going to go play with the live dog. So um, it was definitely a little bit of a curveball, but it did after the, after we got back to shore, exactly as Eric said, it was, a, it was a chance to kind of critique and point out that, you know, even though this is a training, we're really trying to hammer home those rescue priorities and that you have your kit ready, you're looking out for yourself. And then when you deploy, if there is a human element, even as animal rescuers, even if that is our job task, um, we going from house to house, who knows what, we may encounter this human situation that um, that's, that's going to take priority. And, uh, you know, and so that's, uh, that's something that I don't know that when we teach animal rescue, everybody's completely prepared for because you kind of get tunnel vision on the topic. And so in Chicago is a chance to uh, exercise that. And it was really neat because we ran that drill multiple times times and it got better and better each time um, where I think they really walked away with something uh, as far as you know just the the, the human management the animal management the timing uh, the triage and uh, so yeah and it was a lot of fun and uh, got some it, great pictures of me being thrown in the floor of a boat and, and, to, and move forward with that they're the second round of training that they, they shared all the stuff that we give them in the first round the second round, the rescues were better. They basically prioritized, you know, how they were going to rescue the animals, how the victims were going to put into the boats, and how they just did everything. So from our first training, we went out, because that was our first time they did any animal training, animal handling training. Uh, the teams talked. They, they did a really good job for Chicago Fire. And then we came back and we talked the next round of, of students for the, the firefighters there. Uh, they basically took what we'd given in the first round, and the chief basically iterated what he'd expected out of the next round. And they did a much better job immediately versus the learning curve that started in the first class. Right. Yeah. I always joke, there's that old TV show, um, Fear Factor. And the guy that took the challenge first never won because the other participants got to watch from his successes <laughs> in the short you know? Exactly. So, so that poor guy got a face full of poo while um, you know, everybody else figured out how to dodge that. And so that's where those trainings are great, where you have, you, you're going in, you're going in groups. And the first group gets to watch the first group fumble. Second group gets cleaner, but the whole group, everybody in the group is learning all the same things. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It just got better and better. Yeah, and, and as we started to transition uh, from Chicago to really what was gonna be an early end to our, our training season is we wanted to address uh, our large animal floodwater needs because most of, well, up until now is that most of the large animal uh, in the ASAR swift water and flood water classes is simply awareness level and, and introductory because having that discussion about large animals in the flood uh, gets very in depth, has so many characteristics to it, so many influential factors to it. Uh, you can't do it justice in a short amount of time. So we decided we were going to beta test an actual large animal flood water class this year. And we did that up in Wisconsin with friend and fellow responder, Dr. Howard Kedover. And Howard has done, he's been very instrumental up in the Wisconsin area, 
in working with his regional USAR teams and fire departments uh, in adding technical animal rescue techniques. And we'd already done a companion animal class up there previous year. And so we wanted to get up there and beta test exactly what are we looking at and what are the problems that we're having. And the, the primary pro focus was uh, in the past five years, and Brett and I have experienced this also during the floods, different species of animals, whether it be horses, pigs, cattle, um, for some reason, on occasion, they give up and they decide to quit swimming and they sink. Now, we've talked about this in previous podcasts, is that we don't scientifically know why that happens. Are they fatigued? Is it a physical issue? Is it a mental issue? Is it um, something with their blood chemistry that happens? And so what we were doing for the floodwater class in Wisconsin was simply to start working out what techniques can we use as we're working with animals next to boats and how do you safely get an animal next to the boat uh, depending on the boat's size, what's that rigging look like, what's our quick releases look like. And that was our focus for the day, along with how do we provide additional flotation in anticipation of that animal giving up. And really, we ended up with more questions at the end of that eight hours uh, than we started with, but that's where we needed to be. But I think the entire class and, and you know, participants in that class were firefighters. We had uh, Chuck Gross and Tom Bradkey from Illinois Task Force One down there. Um, and from North Central Water Rescue, um, if you haven't been to those guys, they're outstanding. So we brought in the people that actually were doing this in the field and had experience to give us perspective. And what came out of that was a research project. And I'll, I'll kind of kick off a little bit about going into 2021. Uh, for you guys in the technical animal rescue world, you may be familiar with Jim Green, over in the United Kingdom, and he runs BARDA, which is the British Animal Rescue and Trauma Association. And Jim had contacted me after seeing our Facebook post on working on this class, and he said, we're having the same problem over in the UK. And we'd like to team up with ASAR and do a research project, do a, an international white paper to figure out why these animals are giving up on swimming and start to establish some sort of rescue guideline. And so long story short, we are, will be launching with several university partners in 2021, an actual research project where we are swimming animals. We're not killing anything. We're not swimming them to exhaustion. We have a special mannequin being made that will simulate an animal that's given up. So no animals will be harmed in the making of this research project. Uh, but we're hoping that after our year of research that we can actually give rescue teams some idea of what to expect if you have a fatigued horse, you know, with this body score or in this type of environment, expect him to go 50 yards or expect him to maximum maybe 100 yards in swimming. Uh, the, you can't realistically expect an animal to swim a mile when they're fatigued and compromised in floodwaters. So we're also hoping out of this project to have product manufacturers try to work on additional flotation devices that can support a horse if it decides it can't swim. And can we float these animals out in a safe way uh, with a quick release type flotation device uh, that will support the entire body? We're really excited to get that off the ground. Um, anything, or Carly, you were up the Wisconsin class. Anything from Wisconsin from you guys? The Wisconsin class was was really great because it just reaffirmed some of our thoughts about swimming animals. Very neat to work out running some of the straps through through the water when a horse was actually already in the water. That was one of the things I thought was really interesting was we, we developed some techniques for actually being able to run straps easier. So it was really beneficial to actually get that horse in the water and just spend a lot of time problem solving some of the issues that you might have when a horse is in the water. So on the Wisconsin response, when we did the train up there, the, I think the most beneficial package that came came out of it for me was actually working with the responding techs that actually do the job and finding all the little small details like Carla was talking about, running a strap under a horse that's soaking wet. You're, you're, in, you're in a loose couple to the drink if you don't have a plan. So having Chuck... 
Chuck Gross and Tom Bradkey down there and working through some of the stuff and, and Dr. Howard, which was, he's amazing. And just figuring out the placement of the animal alongside the boat, or how you're going to use two boats or how you're going to hold the head up. There was a lot of little details that we worked through during that class that is just going to make rescues moving forward for the team that was there just a lot easier. There's a lot of uh, talk back and forth on how we've done things in the past. We took a little bit away from each other, which makes things, everything's better. So we know what doesn't work. Uh, Eric and I'll be the first ones to tell you the things that does not work for us in the last 20 years. So we can, we can tell you the things that we've tried and have failed and we tell you the things that work really well. So sometimes the failures will move us forward a lot faster than the successes. Absolutely. So as we're moving into 2021, Brett, uh, you want to talk about some of the programs you're going to be rolling out? 2021 is going to be a huge year where we're moving forward in spite of COVID. We, we, our team has survived COVID through here just because we had a disaster response plan in place. Uh, we, we, we maintain the standard throughout the training of 2020 so we can set forward and do training in 2021. Uh, new projects we're rolling out. We've partnered with a company called First Line Tech out of, out of Virginia. They, they supply uh, hazmat equipment to chemicals, fiber tech wipes. You'll see, you'll see a lot of fiber. You'll see a lot of information about fiber tech wipes coming out over the next month or two because we're gonna have posted on the websites and and we'll probably do an interview with with Corey Coolings out of First Line Tech so he can talk about it a little bit. Uh, but we're gonna use this stuff. It's a basically it's a hybrid decon system. It's a hybrid decon. I've kind of talked about this in the other podcast. This is a, a way we're gonna isolate just what the threat was, what the contaminant is. Versus using lots and lots of water and a lot of equipment, we're going to basically focus on focus on what the contaminant is and remove it. So we're going to do a face, faster response on there. Uh, we're going to push forward on a large animal decon unit, which we're actually having built. It sits almost to the point of finish. We actually physically went down and touched it uh, a few weeks back, and it's it's on target to be done for the early January. So we're going to roll it out in training in California in early March. Uh, this decon shoot system is basically going to be for all animals, all large animals. Uh, all livestock. We can go from goats to cattle, uh, horses in the mix as well. Uh, so we're basically trying to do a low stress, low stress animal handling and animal decontamination. So if the least amount of stress we can apply for apply on an animal is going to make it easier in the decon process. We've had these crazy amount of fires, and it looks like the fire season, as Eric said in, in a previous phone call we had about, it looks like the fire season is going to carry on more extensive next year as it did this year. So 2021 fires in, on the West is going to be horrible. So we know we got to decon those animals. So the shoot system is going to make it a lot easier. We'll be able to move a lot, a number of animals through, get that, that Carson Jenks smoke off their coat, off their coats. And so we can make sure they're done. we flooding has never stopped. Uh, the North Carolina flood, the, the, my brain quit. Hold on. The North Carolina floods uh, from this year, got the water table so high any rain that they get or any snow they get this year is just going to continue that through for any other storms so we know we're going to have some flooding in the agricultural lands in north and south carolina and down through georgia so we're going to have to roll out the large animal decon unit over there as well and get that raw sewage contaminant off the animals it's going to basically make the farmers more successful it's going to keep things moving so 2021 we'll have a large animal decon training platform put out along with the shoot system currently in the process of writing an animal decontamination manual. It'll be a comp comprehensive guide to animal decon. Hopefully they'll get that run out and published by the first part of this 2021. Uh, along with that, we're, the partnership with First Line Tech, we've done some other stuff with some other partners that'll be rolling out in the future, small animal decon. Uh, we're going to do a lot more with the service animals and the military working animals as we move forward in 2021. Yeah, it's all really exciting uh, watching this come to fruition, you know, Brett started this about 18 months ago and it's now really starting to gel as we're starting to see actually in the state, uh, plans that we work with, they show their gaps and, and this is a tribute to them that they're actually doing their gap analysis of pet livestock. What are we going to do with that? How are we going to solve that problem? Non-traditional animals. How are we going to solve that problem? Home decontamination or gross decontamination when people are standing in the lines and waiting for more detailed. And, you know, our primary focus right now is radiation, uh, but that's just because the nuclear regulatory commissions are asking for it. We're still going to address the traditional oil and work with, with environmental companies on animal cleanups and things like that. So, uh, this has always been in the too heavy pile that we couldn't get it done 
and now it's it's actually coming to fruition and i think it's going to set an outstanding standard of consideration for helping animals during decon events and you know brett brings up the wildland fire and for all these years it's it's always been an underlying issue of do we need to wash these animals down and now we're getting uh, studies done by UC Davis and we're getting studies done by Texas A&M where it says yes there are contaminants on the coats of these animals and as they groom themselves or as they groom other animals they are ingesting these contaminants so it's imperative that they go through a decon process when they come out of that fire uh, and we saw multiple publications on it this year coming out of California and as Brett said and as we've seen uh, coming out from the California authorities uh, they're calling these global climate fires. This isn't just a spontaneous season. This is all due to changes in their environment that are going to continue. So this is going to be a longstanding issue. So really exciting stuff from that. To move forward from what Eric just said, uh, the partnership we brought on with Garrett Leonard, uh, he's he's our animal behaviorist, animal, large animal behaviorist. Uh, working with him, the, the two heavy piles got a lot smaller. So working with him closely, we basically worked on how livestock is going to move and what's the easiest transition point. So Garrett and I basically took the two heavy lift pile and split it in half. We took the animal behavior portion, tried to figure out the most safest way for our responders because it's just not the safety of the animals we're concerned with. We're worried about uh, just-in-time training. So getting somebody that's going to help decon do a decon process on there and just make it safe for them because a large animal that you're trying to spray water on is not going to be happy with you so we're figuring out the best way that's what the shoot system came from so all this wouldn't be possible without garrett and i working together there's no way we could have took this whole process we had to split it in half and make it manageable portions to make all this work yeah, and as this rolls out you'll see it on the facebook page we're going to introduce some new websites to you in the spring uh if this is important to your agency which if you want to be disaster compliant with OSHA, uh, getting your small animal uh, has whopper or your has whopper 24 hour training in and Brett does a small animal component, but then we'll be adding this large animal component to it to make it uh, a little bit longer, but we're going to try to get it in four or five days. Um, but get that training scheduled now because it's going to get um, really busy and we want to make sure that your agency is covered. Mike, what do you got going for 2021? What are you putting in the into the mix? Well, uh, more with uh, PwC, uh, you know, personal watercraft or RWC when they transitioned over with the sled on the back. So that's been getting growing more and more uh, with um, with uh, first responders, and we are trying to get to where we're actually not just rolling with the sled, but every once in a while responding with a larger craft on the back of it to use as a lily pad in effect uh, for geared stashed and or, um, you know, uh, MCI being able to use the the PwC as a straight shot out to people, you know, if a, like uh, when we were in Chicago, if you recall, there was a pontoon boat that sank with like 16 people on it. And so a PwC would be overwhelmed with that. So we're thinking about to outfit the PwC a little bit differently to accommodate uh, a larger victim situation. And then that could also transfer over to animals at some point, hopefully, as far as having, you know, the, the, the payload to be able to transport. And then uh, boat operations are definitely coming online uh, with different groups. Uh, just uh, was talking with a group in New Jersey uh, yesterday that covers areas uh, close to the Statue of Liberty. And so that's kind of cool. That harbor has a tons of boat traffic. And so uh, it was fast uh, rescue for that. And then getting, uh, you know, keeping on with my uh, swift water rescue river stuff and also technical rope. And there's a lot of new equipment coming on board with technical rope. Uh, it seems like some of the devices, it seemed like technical rope gear sat kind of flat for a long time in the world of when we're working with brake bar racks and things as such. And I feel like some of the new belay devices that have come out have really just cracked the door open for more and more companies being more challenging, uh, challenging themselves to come out with more equipment. And so uh, keeping our eyes on that and what we like and what we don't, what we think is useful for us. But what's kind of cool about all that is we're carrying a lot less equipment out into the woods for technical rescue, search and rescue than we were because uh, the, the devices we're carrying are lighter and do more than uh, the devices of the past. So just keeping my finger on the pulse of that and keeping my head low and moving fast as far as, uh, you know, uh, everything else that's coming at us, hoping for a, a fun, busy season with, uh, with uh, you know, the, the events of 2020 behind us. Um, 
2020 wasn't all bad. We learned a lot and uh, that we will remember it forever in history. So that's kind of cool. And uh, but 2021 hopefully is uh, is a little bit more fun and exciting, and a little less stress. So that's what we're striving for. Yeah. And you hit some great points there. Uh, the personal watercraft, we've always uh, wanted to gauge that more. And we're actually getting requests now from the fire departments on, you know, can they apply it to animal rescue or human and animal rescue? And that's where I'm going to kick it back to our use of EVAX Act, uh, is that this is uh, something you can put a small to medium animal in and then secure to PWC. Uh, we're also going to be beta testing things with Gunner this year, uh, and hopefully we're back in Chicago uh, working boat ops and PWC and getting some live animal testing done on really how can they ride and how can you manage that load uh, with that type of device because it is such a quick shot. Um, and then also, you know, Mike's located up in the New England area, Northeast region, as we start to expand and we stretch our instructors out is, uh, we'll be, if you're up in the Northeast, um, now you can see Mike anywhere in the country, but uh, he may be leading some more ASAR Switchwater classes. And remember, if you are an agency that needs your human rescue certifications that's what mike does he's got mather rescue he's a rescue three international instructor also um asar is a rescue three international provider if you absolutely need that cert otherwise you can go to mather rescue and uh, mike provides a whole host of, of water and rope rescue and mike actually did our our technical rope research for our instructors uh gosh it's been now two years well i guess it was 2019 we did it um, and we really did talk about moving to a lighter weight system. And as we continue to develop our urban animal rescue training, uh, we're gonna team up with Detroit, hopefully this year. They're building an actual rope rescue little campus uh, there with Michigan Humane. And uh, it's gonna have some confined space training areas, some high angle, low angle, uh, how to get into a window. And what they're looking at is if you're an animal patrol officer uh, doing your everyday job, what lightweight tactical rescue gear should you have in a backpack to make your job safer uh, and uh, so getting to, into getting somebody that is actually monitoring the new gear that comes out and you're right mike every month i see a new name on a new piece of equipment um, that's lighter smaller faster um, and you know we used to lug around 40 pounds of gear because we never knew what we needed and now even with the smaller rescue rope with the higher strength um, we really feel like we can hit go fast mode. Um, so uh, lots of variety coming from Mike, not to mention he's one of the best instructors I've ever uh, had a chance to sit through. And um, so we're really glad that you're here and looking for more with you. Excellent. Yeah, me too. It's going to be fun. Miss Carla, you have some exciting things going on. And, and again, we're going to be promoting our, our Code 3 partnerships along because we promote all agencies on this podcast. But you want to talk about uh, some things coming out? Yeah, absolutely. On the ASAR field, as many know, I lead the large animal rescue operations class, which is a two-day technical rescue for large animals. We are in the middle of uh, planning one of those for spring. So keep your eye out on our events calendar for that. I think that'll be around April. Uh, one of the exciting things I'm, I'm hoping to combine with Garrett are, as Brett said, he's our large animal behavior um, instructor, and we'd like to bring him in for one day of large animal behavior handling class before the Lero class. That way we just have a really um, complete and comprehensive class for for first responders. So keep an eye out for the events calendar for that class to come out. I'm pretty excited about that. I'm definitely looking forward to the new Animal Control Officer Coalition with Code 3. We're gonna be rolling that out. There'll be a lot more information in the future on that. So there'll be another podcast and um, all my Animal Control Officers definitely keep your eyes out for and ears open for that information. Yeah, no, that's going to be fun. You know, we'll be inviting Janae Boswell. Carla and Janae have been working side by side on developing that coalition. And we're going to start working with state animal control associations to identify their needs, gaps, provide training. You know, we really want to provide an environment where animal control officers can um, get outside of the box and start to expand their education, training, knowledge, whatever they need. And this isn't limited to animal control training. If you're an animal control officer 
that wants to go take a Spanish course uh, at your local community college, or if you want to take a computer course, is that we're going to try to build these programs so we can support you in some fashion um, with education scholarship um, or at least training credits at Code 3. So if you do need additional training is that this program is going to provide some of those things and then in addition with the large animal rescue operations i know a lot of people are asking for that class again uh we had six of those scheduled in 2020 and all right. of them had to be canceled so we'll be playing catch up as soon as we can to get those up and you can catch us at acertraining.com go to the events page and we're going to start posting events after the first of the year you're not going to see much if you go to it in december but once we get into mid-january we will go ahead and start adding classes well any parting words of wisdom as we out for the end of the year everybody have a wonderful holiday we uh just are so thankful for all of our supporters um who supported us through 2020 this has been an interesting year and i'm just incredibly proud of our organization and how we persevered through that year and continued our classes safely and we are committed to training uh, more people in animal rescue in 2021. Well, a big thank you to Mike Mather and Brett Huff for joining us for our final 2020 podcast. Um, it's It's been a, a good day. And Miss Carla, where can people find us from here? Yeah, everyone check out our Facebook page at asartraining.com. We have our Instagram page at asartraining and our YouTube channel. And then, of course, our podcast on your favorite player. Happy New Year, and let's hope for a fantastic 2021.